We're continuing our series, Living in Light of Eternity. We want to have an eternal perspective and have that pressed upon us this new year where we're still in the month of January. We continue the sermon series to next Sunday. And then in February, Pastor Jason will begin a series in the book of 1 Timothy in the morning, and then we'll have a series studying the book of James in the evening. A sub-theme, if you picked it up, I hope you have, um, is that we want to have the pilgrim mindset. The pilgrim mindset means we understand that we are people on a journey. And the truth is that everyone is a pilgrim. Everyone is on a journey. And we need to be reminded of that and think accordingly. We, every person has a soul that will live forever, and they are on a journey into eternity. So you're either a pilgrim heading to an eternity of judgment or a pilgrim heading towards an eternity of reward. So this morning, the sermon title is A Pilgrim's Investment. A Pilgrim's Investment. And I do not intend to be overly clever with this title as if I was trying to avoid saying a pilgrim's money. We could very easily have just called this sermon a pilgrim's money. We're going to talk about money in the sermon. Our passage makes us think about that this morning. But the reason why I would call it a pilgrim's investment, because one of the big ideas that Jesus wants us to understand is that when we give, it doesn't just leave our hands, but when we give for his kingdom, that he promises a return on that, that there is an eternal reward when we are generous, when we are generous with others and we are, when we are generous with the ministry of the church. And so it's appropriate that we would call it a pilgrim's investment. For some of you, maybe one of your worst nightmares just came true. Maybe you've been avoiding church for many years because you think, well, this is, this is what preachers talk about. They talk about money. They pass the plate, they talk about money. And you think, really, the one Sunday I show up, the pastor's preaching about money. We must say something about it because the Bible does. And the Bible has much to say about it. And Jesus, the Lord of glory here, has very helpful instructions for us concerning our stuff. So before we pray and read the passage, big picture, I want you to think of your stewardship of your stuff in light of eternity. And ask yourself this question. What is the best investment of my earthly treasure? Before we read God's word, let us ask for his Holy Spirit's help in prayer. Please pray with me. Our Heavenly Father, this is your word. We desperately need it. So help us by your spirit working among us to hear it and not merely to come away with knowledge, but to come away with understanding that it would move from our head to our heart and our heart to our lives. May it do so quickly. 
that we might, through the study of your word, through its reading and its proclamation, that we might better have the mind of Christ so that we would be conformed to his image. That we might live for your kingdom and for your son's glory. So help us this morning, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Hear the word of God from Luke chapter 12, beginning in verse 13. I will read through verse 34. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetedness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. There I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. And he said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body and what you will put on. For life is more than food and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn. Yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? If then you are not able to do as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon... And all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you? O oh, you of little faith. And do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with the treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, There 
will your heart be also. Amen. And that ends this reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he write its eternal truth on all our hearts. What a display of God's grace we are told of. Verse 33, sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with treasure in heaven that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. What a promise. When we are generous in this life, God rewards in the next. Take it to heart. Let's invest our resources in the most secure investment opportunity ever. Invest in eternity and receive eternal returns. I'm tempted to say let's bow our heads, pray, sing almost home, and go grab a cookie and coffee and fellowship. But to get there, Jesus addresses the very things that would oppose us believing and practicing what he promises. He addresses matters related to money and stuff and the heart. Where your treasure is, there your heart is also. And there's a battle over treasure in each of our hearts. And did you notice the two ways he identifies the struggle? Coveting and anxiety. Coveting is a sign that we're being focused on this life and not eternity, the things of this life and wanting more and more of them. An anxiousness about tomorrow and will we have enough for our needs tomorrow. And that anxiousness, even for disciples, hinders joyful investing in eternity. I want us to consider the passage in three headings. We have the setting, the parable, and the teaching here before us. I believe that in verse 22 where Jesus tells his disciples, therefore, he intends for this teaching here to be connected to this parable. So in verses 13 to 15, what is the setting? Well, we see a setting where Jesus is teaching and he warns against coveting. Then in verses 16 through 21, Jesus warns against placing your hope in riches, the riches of this world. And then he teaches his disciples in verses 22 through 34, and he teaches us how to be rich towards God. Let's look at the warning in verses 13 through 15. This is quite the scene. Jesus in Luke's gospel here is teaching and someone interrupts his teaching. It's kind of rude. This man is seeking a ruling from Jesus, but he already knows what the verdict should be. This man is coming to Jesus because Jesus is a teacher of the law and would have been a function of rabbis to help interpret the law and then possibly to advocate in some civil matters related to the Israelites. And so he sees Jesus as a teacher and he says, look, I, it's pretty clear in Deuteronomy 21.7 how the inheritance is supposed to work. And my brother is not following the law, Jesus. So would you tell him to give me my portion? 
Would you advocate for my justice? In verse 14, Jesus refuses to take the case. One day, all men will face Jesus as judge, but at this moment in redemptive history, he's not fulfilling that office. That's not what he's operating in. No, right now, in Luke's gospel, he is the redeemer on his way to Jerusalem to make atonement for sins. He is on a mission to seek and to save the lost and to die in the place of his people. His mission right now is not to be inserted into these civil cases. So in verse 15, instead of siding with this man in this judgment, he does hand down a different sort of judgment. It's a spiritual judgment. And he addresses the crowd who heard this man's request. And he addresses this man's heart. It's been said before, and it's very helpful. There are many people who want Jesus to solve their problems, but not to change their hearts. And here is the Savior filled with compassion for this man. He won't let him be deceived. You're crying for justice, but there's something behind it, and it's greed, it's coveting. Coveting is is breaking the tenth commandment. Jesus says to be on guard against all sorts of it. Exodus 20, 17, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox, his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. See, the tenth commandment requires that we are content with what God has given to us and that we have the right attitude towards others, that we are charitable towards what God has blessed them with. It means we're, we're, we're happy. We're happy when others receive good gifts. It forbids us being discontented what God has provided for us and wanting what belongs to others. It's a matter of the heart. There's a lot of dangers that come with coveting. Now this is one of the commandments that the, the world may call into question. What harm does coveting actually do? Well, of course, if someone covets and it leads to them committing crime to take what's not theirs, they're stealing, that's the real crime. But can't coveting serve some good purpose? Can't it give you a drive for more? I mean, this is exactly what the new atheist Christopher Hitchens argued to Vanity Fair. He was asked to evaluate the Ten Commandments. Now, if you don't know who Hitchens was. He wasn't merely an atheist. He was an anti-theist. He didn't just believe that there was no God. He believed that it was dangerous to believe in a God. And he found the 10th commandment to be the most questionable commandment of them all. He believed that within the right boundaries, coveting was necessary to make it in this world. Without it, where would you get the motivation for hard work? 
If you didn't see your neighbor pull up with the new car in the driveway and you didn't want it, how else would you be motivated to advance on the job or in business? Or from another angle, he believed that coveting would help you strive for fighting against ill-gotten gains by the rich. That you would look and say, they did that in an unjust way and that's not right. That should be shared with others and they should not be allowed to have that. Of course, this is consistent with his godless worldview. If there is no God and there's nothing after this life and you have these desires, then by all means, covet the best this world has to offer. Hitchens' advice to this young man would have been, if he knew his heart, he would have said, this coveting is a good thing. It's causing you to, to seek justice that rightly belongs to you. Jesus says there's something more important. You are confused about the meaning of life. You have defined the meaning of life by the abundance of things that you have. That's his reasoning. Life does not consist in the abundance of things. But if you did define it in the abundance of things, what a terrible treadmill to be on. Never satisfied. Always wanting more. One definition of coveting is this. Thirsting for having more, always having more, and still more. Cell phone companies, they play on this on us all the time right now. It's this new deal where, you know, you can get the iPhone 12 last year, 13 this year, 14 next year. You'll never be without the latest one. And just maybe you've been caught in this moment. You, you think you got a decent phone, and all of a sudden you look over and you're like, what is that? It's the iPhone 46, you know, whatever it is. And someone immediately, you didn't know you wanted it, but now you want it. It's coveting working in our heart. The Apostle Paul talks about the complexity of, of coveting in Romans chapter 7, that he didn't recognize it in himself until the law told him it was there, and then he saw how difficult it was to overcome. And he was a man led to despair of his sin apart from gospel relief and apart from the Spirit's work. You can see that in Romans 7. A good illustration to what coveting does to the soul is this. Imagine you step out to the ocean, not the Great Lakes, so the ocean, salt water. But it's the beautiful emerald beach. And you see the waves gently crashing on the shore and you've been on a long hike and you're so parched and thirsty. And there it is, beautiful, clear, crystal clear water. And you go take a sip of the salt water, and you find yourself thirsty, more thirsty than you were. So you take another sip, another sip. The thirst never goes away, and eventually leads to your demise. That's what happens when we define our lives by the abundance of our possessions. There will always be more and you'll never have enough. To drive the point home, what does it look like for someone to define their life by the abundance of their possessions and where does it lead them? Jesus then gives a parable of the rich fool in verses 16 through 21. And so he's really wanting his audience to understand this is what happens when you hope in the riches of this world. 
What if you had it all? What if you had more than anyone else? Where would that lead to? So the parable begins in verse 16, and there's a couple observations there in the beginning of the verse. He told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. So this man was already rich. He had more than others. Secondly, he didn't gain his riches by any unethical way. It would appear that what he has has come to him in an honest manner. It's his land. He has a bumper crop. Of course, we know that ultimately everything comes from the hand of the Lord. But this man has worked hard and been a good steward of what God has given him. The danger is that he has forgotten where this bumper crop came from. So verse 17 through 18, he works out the dilemma. He has a business dilemma. What do I do here? Where will I store this hall? He needs to make a decision. Just think about it. If he floods the market with his crops, what happens to the value of the crops? They plummet. Is that really being a good steward of what he has? No. What is the best way for him to maximize the value of his harvest? Well, he reasons to a certain strategy in verse 18. He concludes that the best way to invest these assets is to take the expense of tearing down the current barns he has for storage and then to take on the expense of building bigger barns in order that he can hold on to this large harvest. It's the bigger barn strategy. Now, this isn't the first time in the Bible that we've ever seen the bigger barn strategy. So in a, there's one way to, to look at it, that the bigger barn strategy isn't altogether evil or wrong. No. In the story of Joseph, Joseph from God comes to Pharaoh with a bigger barn strategy. Remember the story that Pharaoh had these perplexing dreams, and it was of, of plentiful, then of everything being lost. And no one could interpret them. Joseph did. And he said, Pharaoh, look, you're going to have seven years of just bumper crop after bumper crop and then seven years of nothing. And so build bigger barns to store and to prepare for that day. And Pharaoh promoted Joseph and put him second in command in the land. But there's a terrible contrast between Joseph and this rich fool. Joseph, living under the fear of God, recognizing the Lord's hand in this, this man can't see God's hand in it anywhere. In verse 19, there, what is strikingly absent? Not one mention of God. No gratitude. Furthermore, there's no consideration of why did God give me this harvest? What would he ask me to do with it? He didn't consider how his prosperity could serve others. When Joseph employs a bigger barn strategy, he was prospering, he was promoted, but he knew that promotion came with responsibility. He understood that it was the Lord's doing 
and that God had prospered him and for a season prospered Egypt in order that they would be a blessing to their neighbors, particularly to provide for God's covenant people in a time of famine. This man instead lives as a practical atheist. We don't see him railing against God or denying God's existence, but he, he lives and handles his resources, his funds, as if there is no God. He thinks and reasons as if there is no God. And to his surprise, God speaks to him. In verse 20, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? Quite the, the, the effect that Jesus is going for. Typically, in the parable, God is, is not speaking here. God is entering this parable, speaking to this man. Because it is God who knows the number of his days. He sat back and said, eat, drink, and be merry. Eat, drink, and be merry. You have all that you could ever want. Instead of seeing this as what God has entrusted to him, he sees it for the purpose of self-indulgence, self-sufficiency. He becomes complacent. The hard work that helped amass the riches. He no longer intends to work, but to sit back, relax, eat, drink, and be merry. This is very similar to in 1 Corinthians 15, where the Apostle Paul is addressing the resurrection. And there were those who were denying the resurrection. And what was the Apostle Paul's point? Well, if there's no resurrection, there's nothing after this life, then eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. But here the rich fool misses out for the tomorrow we die part. He says, eat, drink, and be merry, and I'll get to do this for years. And so we don't know exactly how, and it's a parable, so, but maybe we could imagine that immediately in the mail arrives a test result from a routine scan that he had. And he learns that he has very severe cancer that will demand his life immediately. Who knows what it may be? It may be in the construction of the bigger barns. He goes to inspect the new ceiling and it collapses. But his life is demanded of him and he has nothing to stand before God with at the judgment seat and said, this is what I did with what you entrusted to me. He is not rich towards God. So Jesus doesn't want you and I and doesn't want his disciples to end up like this fool. He wants to tell us how to be rich towards God. And that's the heart of his teaching there in 22 through 34. In it, he describes a life that is trusting, dependent upon his heavenly Father. The life that is rich towards God is the life that depends on the heavenly Father. But he's connecting the two things. 
He needs to address a further concern that he would have in the hearts of his disciples. See, some are concerned about building bigger barns, and then there are others who are concerned about how am I going to feed my family tomorrow? How am I going to stay warm in the winter? And looking at his disciples, many of whom have left businesses and occupations to follow him and will continue to do so as he sends them out. Their temptation isn't to build bigger barns, but it's to say, how, how am I going to be nourished for the journey tomorrow? And so Jesus makes a very clear argument. He does so from two perspectives. He appeals to creation, and then he elaborates on life in the kingdom of God. Creation and kingdom, that's what he points them out to. He said, here is how you can live a life rich towards God, not worrying about tomorrow, therefore generous with whatever comes into your hand. So in verses 23 through 28, he points out creation. He wants them to consider creation, to think about it. Verse 24, consider the ravens. Verse 27, consider the lilies. He wants us to think carefully about them. He doesn't want us just to, in times of stress to go for a hike. And that will relieve the tension and take your mind off things and you'll feel better no, he wants us to analyze what is happening in God's creation around us. So he calls our attention to the ravens. You can imagine that there could have been ravens or crow-like birds nearby. So imagine Jesus pointing and saying, consider those birds over there. And everyone looks at them and they would have said, first thing pops in their mind is, those are dirty birds. Well, what do I mean by that with it? Those were birds forbidden by the Jews from eating. They were unclean animals. They were on the no-fry list. Do not touch them. Do not eat them. Stay away. Jesus said, consider these unclean ravens. They're scavengers. They don't plan their next meal. Yet God provides for them. Aren't you more valuable to him than these birds? Ralph Davis points out in a very memorable way what's going on here. When God feeds the ravens, it may be armadillo roadkill. And so he helps us apply it. Next time you are driving along and see those shiny dark birds picking at a smashed up skunk corpse on the asphalt, you should begin singing, Great is thy faithfulness. Consider the ravens. He tells them to look at the flowers. Consider the lilies. Now, they're probably not the lilies that I think are among this arrangement up here. I think there's lilies. I'm not certain. Someone can confirm to me later. We're not certain exactly what type of flower this is. It's most likely a similar scenario that Jesus on the Galilean countryside looks over in the springtime and sees little wildflowers growing up among the grass. And he's like, look at them. Have you, have you really appreciated how beautiful these little flowers are? They, let me tell you, they're, 
they're more splendid than Solomon ever was. The richest man. That's who Jesus appeals to in the passage. The, the richest man who ever lived. He couldn't even dress himself as much as these, these little flowers that are growing up among the grass. And he points out, these aren't, these aren't beautiful, glorious oak trees that will be around for centuries that will appreciate their splendor. These are flowers that will get scooped up with this grass here and get thrown into the oven. See, fuel for baking and cooking was, was scarce in this region. And so the, in the springtime, part of what you would do in order to provide for your, your cooking needs is you'd go gather grass for tinder and for fuel, and then you just scoop up these wildflowers in it. So what is the purpose of these flowers? Well, they eventually, they serve man by helping get a little fire started. He said, what, what pragmatically, really, what was God doing in creating this? He's creative. He appreciates beauty for the sake of beauty, even among these little flowers that we thrown into the fire, only last a couple weeks. And you're concerned that he's not going to provide for your outer needs. You're concerned that there won't be enough clothing. He's saying, think through this. The Lord values those made in his image. He's giving you eternal soul. These are temporary. He'll provide for his kingdom pilgrims. Consider creation, but also consider the kingdom. He draws a contrast between his disciples and the nations of the world. There in verse 29. And do not seek what you're to eat and what you're to drink, nor be worried. And into verse 30. For all the nations of the world seek after these things. And your father knows that you need them. He's saying, disciples, you're not of this world in the same way that others are. You have been brought out of the kingdoms of this world. You belong to the kingdom of my father. It is the pagan nations around you who get upset about these things and concerned and go to war over these things. But that's not how you are to live in the world. And when you live confident in my heavenly father's care for his kingdom, it is a testimony that you are different among the nations. But it's not just that you are in the kingdom, it's that your father knows that you need them. You've been brought into the kingdom as servants and as sons. Jesus saying, my God, my Father, your Father, he knows, he cares. Verse 32, this is a, a unique phrase in the New Testament. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. He, he takes a moment and says, I've been telling you about my father. He's your father. This is his heart. He delights to provide for your needs. He delights to give you his kingdom. You can be rich towards him by 
taking what he then entrusted into you and, and giving it generously for the good of others and for the sake of this kingdom that you are now a part of. You can do so because you've been brought into the kingdom by great expense. He's looking forward to the cross. And he says, you were already part of the kingdom, but I am going on my way to pay for you to have entrance into this kingdom. No, we can be rich towards God because he was first rich towards us in giving him his precious, beloved, priceless son in order that we might know him as father. And in return then, yes, if he would give us that, the only begotten son, and anything that we would need, anything in the kingdom, and anything related to the needs of this life, certainly our heavenly father will provide. There's a distinction here in the teaching that Luke draws out for us, and we need to make the distinction this morning. Each person in this room battles anxiousness about tomorrow and coveting. But not everyone is entitled to these assurances and promises of the kingdom and of the Father's care. There in verse 22, Jesus, we are told, turns as if he would from the crowd and begins speaking directly to the disciples. And if you don't know God as Father through Jesus Christ, then you still are in the position of the rich fool that any moment your life could be demanded of you. You have nothing to answer before your Creator. But if you humble yourself and turn from your sins, forsaking the kingdoms of this world for the kingdom of God and coming through Jesus, there is a great welcome into the Father's care and there is the greatest opportunity to take the things in our pockets and in our bank accounts and to leverage them for eternity. So take inventory. Does your stuff define your life? Does your sense of security rest on the numbers in your checking account? Does your happiness depend upon having the latest version of your favorite toy, bike, vehicle, car? Does your sense of purpose get wrapped up in the neighborhood that you're able to live in? Some of you may be thinking, I'm a college student. You saw the car I drove here this morning. That's nothing to rest your, your hopes in. You've, if you could see my apartment or smell my apartment, you would know that my life doesn't... What, what is the thing driving you? Does that motivate you to go and pursue what the world would tell you will be your happiness and your joy? No, here is what the Christian must do is that we cannot have our stuff to define us, but we need to define the purpose of our stuff. That's the shift we must make. Because of my Father's care for me, I am free to be generous with my stuff and to invest in eternity. 
It may not be necessary. I, 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 I do think that it is relevant that because there's so much confusion in the broader world about what Christians think about money and the prosperity gospel has been toxic in so many environments saying that you invest in the kingdom of God and you get your returns now. That's not what the Bible teaches. So there's always this, this sense that I feel like you need to make an apologetic for talking about money, but Jesus gives the best apologetic here about why we need to think about these things and to consider our stewardship. It's not that he's ultimately really, it's after our wallets. It's that he's after our hearts. Because where our treasure is, that's where our heart will be. Is your treasure here or are you storing it in eternity? Jesus is after your heart this morning. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, there's so much in this text, so much that dissects us, that corrects us, so much that encourages and strengthens us. So I pray for brothers and sisters here, those who you've entrusted with much, who are tempted to build bigger barns for themselves, may they see the responsibility of the prosperity that you have placed before them. May they be good stewards investing in eternity. I pray for those who may have walked into this door hungry, literally hungry, who could barely afford to heat their homes and they were watching the gas gauge to see if they'd have enough gas to get to church and then back to work tomorrow morning. Oh, Lord. May they know what it means to be rich towards you and your tender, thoughtful care for them. And may those who have much share with those who have little. May we live differently than our neighbors around us, not for ourselves, but for your glory, your kingdom, and for eternity. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.